All right, welcome to the conversation. Uh, speaking of which, we're gonna have a conversation right now uh, that's going to be both serious and fun. Can you leave your uh, estate to cats? Uh, I'm looking forward to the answer. Uh, we're gonna find that out. Uh, but we're also gonna talk about some serious issues with our guest, Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell. Uh, she's written a book, Her Honor. Uh, she was the first African American woman jurist in Northern California. Uh, she was assistant dean of Stanford Law School, vice provost of Stanford University. She's won so many awards, it would take up the rest of the interview. So I'm gonna skip that. Judge Cordell, welcome. Thank you so much, I'm delighted to be talking to you. Thank you, that's wonderful of you to say. So uh, you've been involved in political cases, non-political cases. Uh, but first I wanna start with the fact that you're a trailblazer. So I imagine that it was different for you being a, an African American female uh, uh, judge as opposed to you know, a white male judge. Uh, but how was it different? Uh, that, that's what I was curious about. Sure. Uh, when I went on the bench, this had been in the early 1980s, uh, there had been no black woman judge at all in all of Northern California, which is a little shocking, uh, but it was the case. So the pressure was on. Uh, the pressure was on from my own community, from the black community, from brown communities, pressure not to mess up. Uh, and it's true, you know, whenever you're the first of any thing, any kind, there's always pressure. People are always watching because no one like you has been in that position. So it was pressure to not mess up, to represent and make things look, make, make us look good. And then on the other side, there were the, I say like the good old boys who basically were waiting for me to mess up. It's like, oh, it's only a matter of time and you know she's not gonna fit in. People weren't actively saying that, but the pressure was there, I could feel the tension. And most of it came from people who had been in the system long, like prosecutors and you know older white male judges who weren't used to and didn't want a whole lot of change. So pressure was on and I knew that the only way to deal with this, and this has been the story of my whole life, always be prepared and just know your stuff. And that's what I did. Yeah, and so it's amazing how, recent progress in this country has been. My co-founder Dave Kohler, his mom is the first chair of a physics department of any college in America. And so for it, not just as an African American, but for as a woman, there's so many first in our lifetimes, you were the first. It's amazing, it's amazing. So, and, and I, you know, you wrote about how you also had pressure from defendants to understand them better. Right, and so, the, and I thought that was super interesting. But one more question about that: Did the the folks who were put the pressure on you, thinking that you were going to fail, did they also think, oh, she's probably going to be soft on defendants because she might actually understand them? And God forbid you should do that. Yeah. So I and you actually hit it exactly right because word would come out. I have to tell you the courthouses, the grapevine, the gossip and the grapevine is just ridiculous. Everybody knows what everybody's doing or at least thinks they know. And word was coming down quite clearly primarily from prosecutors who most people don't know this, but prosecutors have more power than judges. So the prosecutors, and I'm talking criminal cases here, decide what charges to bring. Judges can't decide that. So whatever comes in the courtroom comes in the courtroom. And and prosecutors who were used to being in charge and also 
being in front of judges who were former prosecutors. So when I came on the bench, there were very few people coming on with my background. I was a criminal defense attorney on the defense side. So there was the expectation she's she's gonna be soft, she's gonna give really you know low sentences, and she's not gonna set high enough bail. All those kinds of things were being said. And part of this work is just gotta ignore it and you have to do what you believe to be right. And sometimes as I write in the book, it can be very difficult. Yeah, it's amazing the gaslighting that happens because the assumption is that you should not be open minded to defendants. And so they put pressure on people who are actually being good judges and actually judging the case on its merits and are open minded and reasonable as you're supposed to be to a judge. But if you said to them, "Oh, kind of this guy doesn't actually even take defendants into account, they'd be like, what, how dare you, right? So, so I'm fascinated by all that. But speaking of which, there was a judge in Northern California who people thought was too open minded towards the defendant, and that was Judge Aaron Persky. And and that was in the Brock infamous Brock Turner case, and that was of course the the rape case that came out of Stanford. Um, so he, you campaigned against his recall, and I'm fascinated by that. So tell me more about that. Why'd you do that? What'd you think? Accused, and I write about the recall of Aaron Persky. Because when that happened, I had retired from the bench, uh, and people who were pushing to recall him. I could hear them, they would all saying, well, you know, why are you pointing to me? Why are you talking about him? Why isn't the judge defending himself? And what people didn't understand is that trial judges at the time have no right of self-defense. That if there's a case pending before a judge, a judge cannot say anything about the case, no matter how badly people are portraying the case and the decision. I took a stand of supporting Judge Persky and against the recall because this recall was nothing more than a threat to judicial independence. And I was stunned. Here I am in Silicon Valley, very educated electorate. And when I would put this out there, judicial independence, I'd get responses like, well, what's that? Or I'd get response, that's just another way of judges just circling the wagon. I mean, I was absolutely stunned. And what people didn't appreciate, and many people still don't, is that you know there are three prongs to our democracy. You have the legislative branch, the executive, and the judiciary. And if one of those legs gets pulled out, we don't have a democracy anymore. So judicial independence, everybody who's ever been in court, absolutely without fail, wants a judge to listen carefully, Listen to the facts, apply the law, and then make a good decision. Nobody wants a judge to hold up and then, oh, wait a minute, put the finger to the wind and test out whether or not the public might have a problem with the decision, might find it too controversial, might lose their job as in a recall. So judicial independence has to be a part of our judiciary. But since that recall, judges are trial court judges are doing just that. They are basically really concerned about being recalled because they might make a decision that's controversial. I find that horrible, I find it frightening. And that's why in the book, I have a chapter called The Fix, where I suggest 10 things that could make this system better and to fix the things that are broken. And one of them is to change the rules about recalls. Not every state allows judges to be recalled. But those that do, like in California, you can recall a judge any for anything you want. You don't like the way the judge 
dresses, okay, have a recall. There are only two states I note in the book that say you can only recall a judge if the judge engages in malfeasance, misconduct, or has committed a, been convicted of a serious crime. And I believe, and my recommendation in the fix is that every state should have that rule. No judge should be recalled for making a lawful decision. Judge Persky made a lawful decision, a controversial one, but it was a lawful one. And the other thing I just want to point out to you is that People got all upset because the sentence they felt wasn't wasn't harsh enough or wasn't punitive enough because he gave this young man six months in jail. Nobody gets upset when judges hand down harsh sentences and send people away for 50 years to life, 20 years to life. You never hear about judges getting recalled for that. And it's very sad that we have become, and for a long time, such a punitive society when it comes to dealing with individuals who have violated the law and where the system can be utilized to certainly punish, but also to work for redemption. And that's what I find so sad about what the system is like now. So I definitely understand what you're saying about judicial independence, and I understand that you're doing it out of principle. At the same time, I just want to push back a little bit on that idea, on that principle, because what if it, so in that case, it was a judge who seemed to empathize with the defendant and I mean, talked about his swimming career or something along those lines when a woman had been raped. And I know you're doing it out of principle, but what I was, the funny thing is, I was gonna say, Give the example that you gave, which is what if a judge said, hey, you know what? I don't empathize with any of these black defendants, so I'm giving them all 50 years, okay? Well, you know, if you say because they're black, yes, that could be an actual legal issue. But if they don't say it, but it's still clear, is your position no? Keep, you know, it's terrible. He's putting away people that are, that don't deserve those kind of sentences. But he didn't break the law, so it is what it is. Right, well, two things. One is I don't think judges should empathize with people. Um, I, I, you know, our, we're human beings, we wear the robes, but we all come from different backgrounds that inform who we are and how we make decisions. What's critical is that we follow the law and follow and uphold our oath to to follow the law both under the US Constitution and whatever the state constitution is. So I don't I don't think it's about empathy, it's about looking at the rules. So the rules when in sentencing are that there are and they're all spelled out. You look at the circumstances surrounding the victim, the crime, the sophistication or lack thereof of the defendant, and then you look at the defendant's background. That's what we're required to do. So so you know, it's not the empathy, it's about using you know our own experiences to inform how we how we impose sentences. The second part of your question was oh about how you know what if a judge just imposes harsh sentences all the time? Here's the deal: judges should be held accountable, and I have no problem with recalls holding judges accountable. But again, recalls should be when a judge has broken the law or violated it. But there are other ways to hold that really punitive judge accountable, and that is. Trial court judges, 
are all subjected to limited terms. So that judge could not be reelected if the judge decided that the judge wanted to stay on in another term. Judges are also subject to the appellate courts where the decisions of trial judges can be reversed. And we can be told you didn't make the right decision and you know either do it again or just convictions reversed or have to do sentencing again. So it's not like judges aren't held accountable. Take for example, what about this judge in Wisconsin? Bruce Schroeder in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who you know went in the streets and was just you know killed two protesters and injured one. And this judge has said, no, we're not gonna call those dead people and the injured person victims. You can call them rioters and arsonists, but no, you know, not victims. Well, legally, can he do it? Yeah, he's in charge, he has discretion. But if people are concerned about that, I certainly am. I have a chapter in my book called Bad Judges. I, you know, he belongs in that chapter. Then we have people, voters, have the the wherewithal to hold the judge accountable. So I'm just back to I think the rule should be what it is in only two states, Georgia and Montana, that if a judge uses his or her discretion and does not break the law, that judge should not be subject to a recall. However, there are other ways to hold judges accountable. So um, I went ballistic about that case, I agree, very bad judge. Uh, it's, it, was, it was just outrageous to say you can't call the folks who died victims and instead you have to call them rioters, looters, etc. Um, and, and I look, you're obviously brilliant, Judge Cordell, so I, I'd, I would wanna talk to you all day. I wanted to ask you about elections and whether judges should be elected, etc. But we're way out of time, so nonetheless, uh. I, I know, I know. But nonetheless, I can't help but ask about uh, two things on a lighter note. So what happened in the case where a wealthy guy tried to leave his estate to the four cats? Yeah, and again, a Stanford person, he was an inventor and uh, he left his, he didn't have any children, he didn't have any relatives. And so he left his estate to Tom, Dick, and Mary, and they were feral cats. And uh, yeah, I mean, he left um, a lot of money and a lot of property. And so what happened? Each of the cats had a lawyer. I write about this in the book. Um, and each of the cats had a lawyer. And then he left the residue of his estate to um, nonprofits that take care of pets like the SPCA, those kinds of things. So all the lawyers were in court, in my court, fighting over this man's estate and representing the cats who, and I don't know what lawyer in the world drafted this will and a trust that left the cats that they should be treated in the manner to which they had become accustomed. What is that? So I'm not gonna tell folks the end of this, but just know that it really, was one of these cases that I just couldn't forget. And yeah, there are stories like that in the book. Okay, as well. the book is called Her Honor. It sounds like they might have had a cat fight about that. <laughs> so just one quick last thing about that. Sure. How much did he leave the cats on average? So I'd have to look in the book quickly, but it was $600,000 plus he had some real estate, some property. Okay. So there was a lot to fight over, Well, big in, cat fight. Indeed, indeed. And then I can't help but ask this, okay, what's worse or more gut-wrenching filled with more conflict, murder cases or divorces? Divorces, 
hands down, divorces. When I was assigned to family court three years, I was by the end of that, I had served my sentence. I was just almost completely wiped out. So divorces without a doubt, I'll take a murder case any day. <laughs> wow, okay, so now you know, you've been warned. All right, Judge LaDoris Hazard Cordell, a bit of a living legend. Check out our book, Her Honor. Thank you so much for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, back on the conversation. Ben Wink is gonna join us, he's an economy reporter in the Insider. It's an interesting point about jobs and housing and if they're interconnected. Ben, welcome. Thanks for having me. No problem. So. Um, You've got an interesting thesis here that if people can't afford housing, they might not be able to get a job. Help us understand the connection. Yeah, so this is a trend or, or a phenomenon that we saw before COVID even. Um, the wonky term for it is a spatial mismatch. Essentially, it means when there isn't affordable housing where the best job opportunities are and all the areas that have affordable housing don't have the best job opportunities. So the jobs and the housing just aren't matching and that's been really just blown up over the pandemic, right? We've seen house prices just skyrocket. And we also have this labor shortage going on where in most states, there aren't enough workers to fill all the job openings we have. So at the moment, all these big job hubs, cities, areas that have seen housing go up so much, they don't have the uh, the housing opportunities for, for especially uh, low wage workers and people who are trying to get their first homes and get settled in and kind of climb that socioeconomic ladder. So uh, Ben, I'm gonna tell you about a, a microcosm of that and then we'll talk about it in the bigger concept, context. But a little while back, my family and I went to, uh, to vacation to Jackson, Wyoming. And so uh, one of the towns around there is very upscale and uh, they, uh, had a massive labor shortage and half the restaurants weren't open. The others were open only for a brief period of time for it could only take a small number of people, giant lines at the McDonald's, etc. And I asked around and I said, why? And it turns out they have no affordable housing at all. So there was nowhere to live and it's Wyoming and they had to drive hours and hours and people thought, I don't wanna drive hours and hours and get paid low wages. So they had nobody to work, it was kind of amazing. Is that the phenomenon we're talking about? That might be a really intense case of it, but that's basically what's happening in the larger cities as well? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. I mean, there are only eight states right now that have enough workers to fill every job opening, right? Wyoming isn't one of them. and so. You know, in some cases, right? It's it's the cities that don't have affordable housing, but it can also be these uh, these towns or smaller cities out in Wyoming that are you know even though uh, they have a dire need for jobs, housing just isn't available. It's even tougher out there because you don't have a city that you can connect through public transit. It's harder to kind of uh, just to spread some of that um, affordable housing or or that interest, that job interest, from a major city. Um, so somewhere like that, it's it's even tougher. So in a city like LA or San Francisco, is commute a part of it? Because so if you go far enough out, in it, so I'm using LA because we are in LA as an example and I know it better. If you go far out enough, I guess you could find affordable housing, but it would take you a couple of hours to drive back into LA for your job. And does that make the job then unaffordable because you're spending so much time commuting? Is that part of the problem here or am I missing it? 
that's part of it. So it's, it's definitely one half of the problem, right? The, the solution from the experts that I've spoken with, they say it's, it needs to be two pronged. So on one hand, and obviously LA does not have the public transit that you see in, in New York or even somewhere like San Francisco. So that definitely you know, hits it pretty hard, especially when traffic is an issue and people are driving hours to get to work. Um, so on one hand, you can up housing density, you can up zone in some areas and create those affordable housing opportunities in LA or near transit hubs that can get people to the uh, the most promising job hubs. Uh, so that's that's the housing supply side of it. You bring in more affordable housing, you uh, you boost housing density, you upzone, that can help. On the other hand, if you can move uh, government funding, get some private sector interest in areas outside LA, communities that have more affordable housing but don't have as promising job prospects. That's the other side of it, right? You can move. Uh, you can move investment interests out there. You can either through tax breaks or, or uh, public policy. If you can kind of kickstart that cycle and create a new job hub where housing is already affordable, while still uh, the important part is preserving the affordable housing out there. That can be through renter protections or or even building more homes in those areas. Uh, if you can create a new job hub that can not only you know create uh, job opportunities for people who already live in these affordable areas, but also take some of the pressure off of uh, you know the the middle of LA and the, the most uh, unaffordable and uh, you know, job packed areas. You know, this is a little bit tangentially. You didn't write about it, but it's related to this story. So you know, you write about how there's 10 million uh, job openings at uh, that still remain at the end of August, for example. Um, well, I thought the right wing said that the immigrants were coming to take our jobs. So why haven't they taken our jobs? Why is there still, if we have a crisis at the border and the immigrants have flooded into America and they came to steal our jobs, why won't they take them? I mean, part of the tough, the part of the tough challenge that we're facing now is is the jobs, no matter who's taking them, they just don't pay enough. At the moment, right, inflation is is still pretty high. Uh, month over month, it's cooled down a little bit, but it's still near decade highs. Um, and a lot of these jobs, yes, they've seen wages climb, but they haven't climbed in uh, at the same pace that prices have. And so a lot of these jobs, it's sectors that were hit hardest by the pandemic, right? We're thinking about service industry, uh, low hours, low, relatively low wages. And sure, on, in some cases, some of those sectors have seen really big percentage wage growth, right? So leisure and hospitality is probably the biggest one. Wages have boomed on a percentage basis, but on a dollar basis, they're still relatively low. And so people are are waiting, really. They're seeing that, okay, those are the opportunities that are out there. But if I still have some stimulus money on the side, I have a bit of a financial cushion and I can wait, maybe look around a bit more or maybe develop some new skills or move into a sector that is more promising. We're seeing a lot of people do that. Now, how long that can go on? Go on for? We don't know. Uh, we thought that you know, once unemployment benefits lapsed and schools reopened, maybe that would end the labor shortage or or bring more people off the sidelines. But people really are biding their time, and, and part of that is just because a lot of the jobs out there aren't very promising or, or don't have the wage prospects that uh, people are hoping to see. Yes. Uh, so, in this reconciliation bill that they're considering, um, it, is any of this addressed? On the housing side, yes. Uh, on one hand, it was slimmed down. I think it was originally almost $360 billion for housing back when it was a $3.5 trillion plan. Uh, now it's about $150 billion. So 
you know, it, we've seen this throughout the the new plan, the 1.75 trillion. You know, a lot of things are still in there; they're just slimmed down quite a bit. Um, but there is funding to build another, uh, build and preserve another million or a little over a million homes. That's the estimate. Um, and then there's funding for uh, vouchers for the uh, housing trust fund for pu- for public housing opportunities. The problem is uh, we have a shortage, a housing shortage that's way bigger than just a million homes. Um, estimates range from about four million to nearly seven million. So. Yes, that would help, especially you know upzoning in some neighborhoods that are already pretty densely packed, or or creating uh, you know job hubs and and really prosperous communities outside of cities. But it's just not enough homes, um, and so you know we're waiting for maybe builders to come up and and shore up supply. But they have a business to run, and if their margins aren't attractive enough, then they're not going to build more homes and get us to that number that we need. So. Yes, there is funding to help solve this issue, but a lot of people argue it's not enough. And and if, based on your reporting, if it turns out we put more money into housing, it looks like it might help ameliorate our labor shortage issues. Yes, yeah. I mean, the the labor shortage is there are there are still around or nearly eight million people who are unemployed, right? And we have all these job openings, but. As we start to match people with jobs, you know, we'll we'll start to figure out okay where people need to live, how we're doing this whole telework thing, how many people can work remotely away from maybe their physical office. Um, but at the moment, you know, people are just trying to find homes, settle down, and move to to areas that have the economic prospects that uh, that they're looking for. I mean, right now millennials are in their peak home buying years, right? They're trying to set up a, a household and and lay those foundations, and that doesn't just have to do with Getting a home, but it's it has to do with also having the right job, uh, and so if we can uh, alleviate some of the pressure in the in the job market, make it a bit easier to find a home, that not only helps people kind of settle in and and build their local economies, it helps the local economies match people with jobs and takes pressure out of those cities where we just don't have enough affordable housing at the moment to match people with a lot of these jobs that don't offer enough pay to afford to live in those cities. Right, and obviously the homelessness is another issue that's addressed by housing. And so in LA, for example, housing homelessness has skyrocketed. And it's not like all of a sudden people had more you know, mental health issues or addiction issues out of nowhere. No, they, the extra people are almost all people who couldn't afford housing. Uh, and then when you can't afford housing, you also can't get a job because it's hard to take a shower, etc. So it's this vicious cycle that needs to be broken. Uh, like you said, some of the funding is good. It would have been better to have more, obviously. So I just want to ask you one last thing about this stat because it's so interesting. I, I want to understand it better. You wrote in here, uh, metropolitan areas and counties face 10 point drops in job growth for every one unit increase. Help me understand that stat. Yeah, so the study that that figured that out, they used a, they created a, a ratio uh, or an index that calculates, you know, when affordability in and this can be in a metropolitan area, it could be in uh, you know, around states, um, but they said it was it it matched with a lot of these more densely packed areas throughout the U.S. It didn't just have to be on the coasts, um, but for every one unit increase in housing affordability, which in this case means homes got less affordable. Um, job creation and, and job growth plummeted, and and that kind of goes to what you were just saying, right? It's not just that we need to to build more homes to to kind of match people with jobs and 
get through this labor shortage. It's also that if we don't have affordable housing, local economies really seize up, right? You don't have the same prospects. Once people, you know, if homes get too unaffordable, people can't move in. That can't then grow the local economy. People aren't going to invest in businesses and create jobs. That can then knock home values. And so you get into this nasty cycle of people not knowing to come in or out, not knowing, you know, is this going to be a place where I can really settle down? And so, yeah, like that study showed, you know, it doesn't need to, it doesn't take that much more of a jump in housing unaffordability to really start to see the effects in a local economy. Job growth sinks and that gets into a pretty nasty spot. All right, Ben Wink from Insider, uh, really good reporting here. Thank you, Ben, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.